Nothing conventional on the viewpoint. You are listening to KG Mwekezi on SAFM. Welcome back. It's uh, 19 minutes past uh, nine. Uh, we're uh, talking the uh, legacy of uh, Bantu Biko, Stephen Bantu Biko. Uh, he was celebrated in an intimate ceremony uh, as part of the 43rd anniversary of uh, his death. And uh, uh, his, he, um, you know, there was a lecture that was given by the Reverend Al Shapton, uh, the human rights activist uh, who implored black people across the world to redefine the values of the black consciousness movement. He was speaking at the 20th annual Steve Biko Memori- Memorial Lecture. My R's are not coming out today. Uh, uh, Obenawa uh, Amponsa is on hold. He's a transformational coach and academic speaker, facilitator. She, I'm sorry, I apologize, is the former CEO of the Stephen Biko Foundation. Obenawa, my R's are not coming out today. Why is black consciousness still relevant in 2020? Good evening. When I think about black consciousness, it is relevant for so many reasons. I think, you know, as we've seen around the world, the resurgence of anti-black racism and police brutality, the irony that Biko himself was killed in police detention 43 years ago, and yet we see young people like Nathaniel Julius here in South Africa killed by the police, Colin Koza in the U.S., Breonna Taylor, Um, Ahmaud Aubrey, and so many other people who have been killed and killers have not been brought to justice. And in many instances, that violence being perpetrated by the state. I think that's one way that definitely speaks to the ongoing relevance of Biko's legacy. Uh, Here in South Africa, we've recently seen the Kutz saga, right? And so again, questions of whether or not Black is truly considered beautiful, which was one of the key messages of Black consciousness movement and Black people taking pride in themselves and redefining who they were. But I think perhaps the most important contribution that Black consciousness continues to make today is that it inspires us and encourages us to create alternatives to the existing system. It deals with racism and issues of identity, both at the level of the individual, but also at the level of the systemic, and really encourages us all to do what we can individually and collectively to create a more just and equitable society. Issues of race, and and I want to talk about uh, Steve Biko uh, talking um, at you know um, uh, about the Black Consciousness Movement himself because he he spoke about uh, its aim being to unify and and uplift non-white populations, meaning of course Black populations. Uh, but he also me- said uh, it meant excluding a previous ally, liberal anti-apartheid white South Africans. Uh, you know, uh, we know he was was its most prominent son, uh, the Black Consciousness uh, uh, Movement in South Africa today. Interestingly enough, I juxtaposed that against the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, and I juxtaposed it against the Black Lives Matter movement because uh, Al Sharpton spoke at the um, memorial lecture. Is it, does Black Consciousness intrinsically link itself only to race, to Black people only? Absolutely not. And I think the interesting thing is, if you look at the example of the Black Consciousness Movement, there were many white people who were actually conscientized through the movement themselves. You had people like Rick Turner, Turner, Donald Woodson, uh, 
David, Bishop David Russell, many people came to understand that actually they had their own role to play in the struggle. I think the challenge that was being experienced then and that we frankly still see being experienced today is what was then known as the best able debate, right? There was this notion that black people were coming from a position of inferiority, white people were coming from a position of superiority. And so even then it was that white white liberals were then going to define the, the tone, the tempo, the pace of the movement. And Dico's point was, if you're not being oppressed by the movement, but are actually benefiting from the existing system, how can you really, truly, incredibly be at the vanguard and leadership of it, right? And if you're saying that black people are actually equal and capable of managing their own affairs, then we can certainly be at the vanguard of deciding what liberation looks like for us and how it should be brought about. And so Biko's thesis is very much that black people should be at the forefront, but that there certainly were white allies. But his admonition to them was to do the hard work in white communities that it wasn't for black people to have to suffer the brutality of racism and exclusion on a daily basis and then have to do the work of educating white people. But it was really about white people, if you're really with us, if you're for us, this is what it actually means to be an ally and to do the work in your own spaces and to use the privileges that you have to create new opportunity. And again, we saw people like uh, Donald Woods do that in terms of providing black consciousness activists with columns in the Daily Dispatch. We saw people like Bishop David Russell, who definitely stood in solidarity. And those are the types of real partnerships and alliances that Biko was calling for. Let's talk about uh, the challenges of the black child or the the black uh, person in South Africa today. Mostly, most of it is is intrinsically linked to uh, social and economic conditions. Um, uh, at the heart of black consciousness was also uh, the celebration of the celebration. I told you my arts are not coming out today. The celebration, <laughs> the celebration of of black pride and the celebration of of a black culture, how easy and or hard is it for a black child today to say, I'm hungry, but even in my hunger, I will celebrate <laughs> celebrate black pride and celebrate black culture? Right. And let's be honest, any group that is working to resist existing conditions, it will always be challenging. It will always be difficult. It will always um, be an additional burden in terms of, you know, it's hard to be joyful and hungry at the same time. But I think the central point of Biko's thesis was, well, what is in your hand, right? What are the assets that we have that we can leverage to change the current situation? So it wasn't just about, you know, singing, dancing, and clapping people hunger by any stretch of the imagination. Instead, you saw this movement working in communities like Zinyoka in the Eastern Cape, where there are clinics that still exist today that they helped to set up. You saw them starting crushes, community food gardens, and the like. And so really the message was about resilience and empowerment, saying that we come from the people who have a long history throughout South Africa and throughout the continent and the diaspora, not only of suffering and struggle, but a long history of overcoming. And how do we use what we have at our disposal, our intellect, our abilities, our community bonds, to create new options and opportunities for us? And I think in that way, the movement very successfully married the heritage and the assets that existed with current needs to be able to support young people, both physically as well as mentally and emotionally. And I think that's some of the same activism that 
is called for today. Do you think the politicians of today, and I, and I mean the dominant players in the space, are not using the connections that are clearly there between the black consciousness movement um, and, for example, the, the Soweto uprising and, and you know, the, the challenges of, for example, uh, um, um, the hashtag fees must fall movement of today? I, are they not using all of the learnings and the, the, the leanings, if you may, that, that Biko gave uh, to their advantage uh, to make sure that they bring to prominence the issue of black pride and the issue of black consciousness today? Are they missing an opportunity? Are they not reading the room and realizing that black consciousness is a necessary thing even for South Africa and the young people of South Africa today? You know, I don't just think it's about politicians. I don't just think it's about the relationship with black consciousness. I think the question that we really should be asking is, to what extent do we understand our history and our heritage, not just as something that's a nice fact to know, but as something that can really truly be used to help us shape our futures. You know, I tell the story of um, going to, you know, I used to speak with young people a lot, school kids a lot, when I was with the Biko Foundation, and I remember one kid said that when asked to see Biko was, they said that he was a soccer player. Another person said that he's a Kwaito star, right? <laughs> um, and dare you ask about Chris Hani, because then it was totally blank there, kind of like, is he the guy, you know, who teaches science downstairs, right? Yeah. And so I say that to say that I think in general, we need to do more to excavate our history. Not as, again, as simply something to look back for, back to, but as something to learn from and, and to use to build in the 21st century. I also think as well that one of the things that we have a tendency to do as society is to only look to politicians as those who should be doing something differently. And definitely, as our elected officials and people that we have entrusted with being custodians, um, we should have expectations of them. But I think before we even start looking to politicians, or rather in addition to looking to politicians, we can also begin to ask, well, what are we doing? What are right? we in our, doing? In, in our own homes. You know, we've got, if you're listening online, you could as easily Google, you know, a story about Nafi Gonyue, um to share with your children, or the Zico, or Umama Winnie Mandela, right? So to what extent are we educating ourselves and bringing those things forward? And I think in terms of our society more broadly, different civic institutions, how are we using these histories, or is it that we feel the need to reinvent the wheel each and every time? Let me get, because my time is running out, uh, Obenau, but there's a call in Port Elizabeth. Before we go, I think we go to news headlines here. Uh, no, we don't. Okay, luckily we don't. Ngonde in PE, have you got a, a comment or a, a question for Obenau? <laughs> Oh, hi. A, a, a comment, KJ. Hi. I want, I want to say good morning. <laughs> your your text is from Tetwa. Anyway, KJ, okay, Steve, you are such an influence to me. Um, without making too much noise, I took some of your ideas. 1980, I brought a book, I write what I like, and I could have been jailed quite easily for five years. Mm. Secondly, I applied principles and polar writing uh, a pedagogy of the press in Madrid. Out of forty students, eighty-nine of them passed. Because each one, each one, did not apply. Lastly, I can visually see to because right now with this curly hair and definitely the pen 
would not go through. I wonder what <laughs> this blue about cakes, KGM goodies. Okay, uh, the line wasn't that great, uh, uh, but I hope you made out uh, the crux of what uh, Ngonda was saying, Obenawa. You know, I didn't. I did hear him, however, mention pedagogy of the oppressed, which is, of course, is the work by Paulo Freire, that the Brazilian uh, activist that definitely inspired Diesel and other members of the movement. And I think I also heard him re- making reference to um, the pencil test, right? And probably looking at the Crick saga. Yeah. And so what I took from and, that and, and, and reading, I write what I like in 1980 and could have been arrested for it. Uh, at the yes. time, I think uh, the term would have been five years if he was caught with the book. Yes. And I think, you know, the the caller highlights two important issues, right? He highlights the extent to which things have changed. You know, as we sit here, I write what I like. It's freely available. Um, There's lots of different material that we can access in order to be able to better understand the past and shape the future. But in addition to that, I do think what part of what he was highlighting is this idea of, you know, no matter how much things change, they still stay, stay the same. And so when we look again at things like the pencil test and the cooked hair saga, um, and how do we organize so that we're feeding one another, that those are still central issues that we're facing and that Biko's message can help us to address today. Yeah. Oh, as we round off, if uh, he had lived, uh, Biko, we know he didn't, but hypothetically speaking, um, what, if at all, would he make of the kind of society we find ourselves in? You know, to be honest, had Vigo lived, I don't know that we would find ourselves in the type of society that we are living in. That's profound. And, well, and I say this for two reasons. You know, I alluded to the fact earlier that I think black consciousness is very unique in that it speaks both to the individual and our conscientization, right? Whether we're black, whether we're white, whether we understand ourselves as being inferior or superior because of our skin color, right, or our culture, our language, our heritage, anything else. And that's a really important piece, um, our individual understanding of who we are. But BC also very much spoke to systemic issues, right? And I think the systemic issues are really what it continues to bedevil us today in South Africa and across the globe. The systemic issues in terms of do we think differently about what our political system should look like? Do we think differently about what policing should look like? Do we think differently about what our economy should look like? Or is it simply about replacing white faces with darker faces and thinking somehow we're going to get a different outcome? And so I think had Biko lived and black consciousness continued on its trajectory, we hopefully would have seen a different type of society. But the unfortunate truth is that Biko did not live. And as he said himself, that, that your manner of death could itself be a politicizing thing. Yeah. And so I think the question is, how are we politicizing ourselves today? And I don't just mean that, you know, around voting, elections, protests, but what is our political consciousness that we take into our economics, into our places of work, into our education, into our relationships, into our sense of self, and how are we organizing around that to create the type of future that Biko spoke of? Time has run away with me. It's such a thief. But thank you so much, Obenawa. Thank you. Thank you, KG. Take good care. Thank you. Obenawa Amponash. Uh, 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 Amponsa is uh, the former CEO of the Steve Biko Foundation. As we asked the question, is black consciousness still relevant today? And what would Biko think of the society we're in today? Uh, we're going into book reading now, if uh, my... Um, eyes are serving me correctly, but that's what I'm being told. Remember, I'm a guest here.